This morning you have blessed us with your presence. You've allowed us to join our hearts and our voices together in praise and adoration, declaring your glory, declaring that you are holy, holy, holy. And in the midst of all that, you've deigned to stoop down and touch our hearts and give us a sense of your presence, you who are infinite in every way above us. You have come to be with us this morning, and so, Father, we thank you and praise you. And now, Lord, as we consider some thoughts from your word, we pray that you would Open up our minds and our hearts. Help us to understand and and to to see and to believe. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I would ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 73 this morning. Psalm chapter 73, and we're going to land on verse 26 eventually, but uh, we'll want to just quickly just review the whole psalm, but by way of introduction, Psalm 73 is a psalm of comfort for the afflicted. And affliction is a very real part of our lives. Many scriptures make this clear. For example, Psalm 34, 19, which tells us that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. In 2 Corinthians 8, we hear about the churches of Macedonia. You remember that they were in a severe test of affliction. And we know about the life of Paul, who in in his ministry as really the first missionary and mightily, mightily used of God, suffered great affliction. There are those who would try to tell us that the Christian life is one of, of absolute comfort and joy. And when you trust in Christ, all of your troubles will be gone forever and ever. Well, there isn't, there isn't, forever aspect to that, but certainly we know from experience and the testimony of of the Word of God and from just knowing one another that we experience much affliction in this lifetime. The apostles did. In Job chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, we read, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The reality of life under the fall is, and many of of us know this full well, affliction is a very real part of our lives, even for the righteous. We want to primarily, as I said, consider verse 26 this morning, but in order to appreciate the context of the writer's statement, 
Let's read and consider the whole psalm. Let me read Psalm chapter 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, my flesh And my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. God is good to Israel. The psalmist begins this this psalm with that declarative statement. We'll we'll just look at a brief outline quickly of the psalm. The writer begins with this declaration. But notice, first of all, the object of God's goodness. The object of his goodness is his people. Here in the Old Testament, his people are referred to as Israel. Israel. In the New Testament, his people go by a number of different names, believers, saints, disciples, the church, spiritual Israel, etc. 
but it is still the people of God. And surely the psalmist says, truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to his people. He says this as a primary propositional fact. This truth is foundation, uh, foundational to our walk of faith. But notice he goes on to say, to those who are pure in heart. That language reminds us of our Lord's Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who are these pure in heart? They're the members of the kingdom of heaven. They're the people of God. And I refer to Pastor John's series on the Sermon of the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount from a couple of months ago. Okay. Surely, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then let me hasten to add this as we get into this psalm. This psalm of comfort for the afflicted is not intended for unbelievers. Unbelievers should take no comfort from the words of this psalm. Those who do not belong to the people of God, that is, those who are strangers to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, those who have never been saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, those who are among the ones who suppress the truth of God and exchange his truth for a lie, as Pastor John has been preaching from Romans 1. Those unbelievers have no right to the promises of comfort and hope which God offers to his people. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from me, or excuse me, far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And perhaps this morning, you are one of those. Perhaps you realize today that you have no claim to the promises and blessings of God because you do not know Jesus. I implore you to listen today, but I also urge you to come to Christ Jesus. If you do not know where to find him or how to come to him, there are many here today who can show you the way. Don't leave this place until you know the Lord. But let's continue on because our psalmist says in verse 2, But as for me, and he looks at what appears to be the case around him, He made that declarative statement that surely, truly God is good to Israel. But, he says, as for me. And in verses 3 through 12, he focuses on the apparent prosperity of the wicked and the wealthy. For I was envious, he says, of the arrogant. I looked at their ways. I looked at how they lived. They just seemed to have so much fun. They just seemed to be so happy. Things were so good for them. They had things I could never have. They experienced things I don't get to do. 
They seemed to prosper in so many ways. And he says, I was envious of them. And then in verses 13 through 15, we see him and he's tempted to complain. He says, all in vain, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean. Some of us can identify with this, I think. Sometimes we are tempted to complain. Lord, look at how I've lived my life. Lord, I've tried to keep my heart clean. I've tried to be one of those that you are good for, to those who are pure in heart. And we are tempted to complain. But brothers and sisters, let us do as the psalmist does here. He catches himself in order not to sin. He says, if I had said thus, if I had made these declarations of complaint against God, if I had spoken these things out, he says here um, in verse uh, verse 15, where it says, I, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And brothers and sisters, this is a point we need to keep in mind. That the words that we speak to one another have an impact upon the people around us. We can be instruments of great encouragement and blessing to one another, but you know we can also be instruments of temptation to sin. If in those times when we are struggling within our souls uh, with, the, with the, the afflictions in our lives, if we're careless and begin to give vent to some of the frustrations that we are experiencing, we can impact people in a very negative way. We could betray the children of God. Those of us who are parents know this all too well. We see our children sometimes demonstrate the very sins that they've seen in our lives, don't we? And we know that people are watching. Our children are watching. We are watching one another. Not in order to judge, just that we influence each other in these ways. And so we need to be careful and we need to do what the psalmist does. He stops in verse 16. He stops to think and he stops to remember. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, and it was a task, it was a task, but what he did beginning in verse 17, he remembers the fate of the ungodly. He remembered the fate of those he was becoming envious of. In verse 18, the scriptures tell us that God has set them in slippery places He makes them to fall to ruin. In verse 19, we're told they will be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. In verse 20, they are despised as phantoms. Others say, other translations say, say he despises their image. We know that our holy and righteous God, the one to whom we sang and sang about this morning, the holy, holy, holy God, the one who is infinitely other and above and beyond us in every way, including in righteousness, hates 
sin. Despises sin, will not tolerate it. And sin will be judged. And the sinful will be judged. It would probably do us well to spend some time pondering the fate of the ungodly. We've, we've done that a little bit already. But that really isn't our focus this morning. But if you're tempted to complain, remember the fate of the ungodly. Suffice it to say, Jude sums it up pretty well in verses 12 and 13. These are blemishes on your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I'm not terribly envious of that, after all. That's not something that I long for. And so he declares, he criticizes his own folly. He recognizes the foolishness of his thinking. In verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, His reflection on the fate of the ungodly caused him grief. It caused him pain. Verse 22, his self-examination causes him to recognize his utter foolishness. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. As he 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 was reflecting upon his thinking, it was as if... He came to his senses and he said, how could I have thought these things? Where was my mind? What was I thinking? And so he turns and once again, he adores the grace of God. He once again remembers the faithfulness of his champion. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. What a thought. God holds our right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. And so he ends this by renewing his allegiance to God. And that brings us to the verse that I want to just ponder a little bit more about in verse 26. We read in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So from the psalmist's testimony, we can identify many things. My heart and my flesh. Of course, surely we recognize the reality and indeed the certainty of the failure of our flesh and our hearts. Consider the flesh. That which is our physical makeup. Our health 
indeed our lives, our flesh will fail. Some of us feel the effects of that regularly. Um, some of us have just, you know, lived long enough to, to uh, realize, yes, yes, indeed, this flesh uh, is, is going to fail. It is failing. When I get up in the morning, um, it takes quite some time for these old joints to begin to, to be flexible enough. The muscles ache and I'm, uh, I'm in pain just getting moving the first thing in the morning. Some of you young people don't understand this yet, but your flesh will fail. It will. We get old. We're, we're growing older. We experience sickness, don't we? Sicknesses come and go. Illnesses come and go. Our abilities uh, be more limited, become more and more limited as we go along. Now, this may come as, as something of a shock to you, but there was once a time in my life when I was going to be an NBA basketball player. I know that uh, that that um, seems hard for you to believe, but I believed it. <laughs> I was pretty good, actually. To, uh, my my sister is here. My older older sis, much much older sister, is is here, visiting from Michigan. But she could tell you when when I was a, a junior high schooler, middle schooler, I was a pretty good basketball player. In eighth grade, I was five ten. Now at the age of sixty, I'm. Five nine. <laughs> it's not how it was supposed to go. I I thought I was pretty good, and and I had all these abilities. They're limited. There are limits to our abilities. And the reality is, there are limits to our abilities, and not only that, but as time goes on, as the flesh begins to fail, even some of the abilities we had when we were youngsters we begin to lose. That's just how it is. We're weak weaknesses beset us. The reality is the flesh will fail. But not only that, but the passage says, consider the heart. Consider our hearts. The heart, the core of my being, my thinking, my reasoning, my believing. The scripture often speaks of our hearts and the many spiritual dynamics that are identified by the works of our hearts. Consider, I mean, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the intentions of man, or excuse me, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only only evil continually. The heart thinks. Deuteronomy 4.29 But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart. So the heart seeks God. Deuteronomy 8.5 says Know then in your heart. The heart knows things. As the story of Hannah, as she was, she was praying, it says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard in 1 Samuel 1, 12 to 13. The heart prays. 1 Samuel 28, 5 says that the heart 
trembles with fear. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The heart remembers and the heart lusts. Proverbs 6.25 says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Proverbs 15.14 tells us, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. It is the heart that discerns. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart deceives the heart believes, Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The heart sees, Ephesians 1.18 says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And Ephesians 4.18 tells us this, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The heart becomes hard. And Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which we did this morning, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And so the heart sings. Indeed, we live out of the overflow of our hearts. Matthew 15, 16 to 20, our Lord tells us, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Proverbs 27.19 says, As in water face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. No wonder Solomon told us in Proverbs 4.23 to keep your hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So now we have the psalmist telling us that our hearts may fail. Indeed, at times, it will fail. Yes, the flesh will fail, and the heart will fail. Furthermore, we know that the flesh and the heart are intertwined. We know how we get when we don't feel well, don't we? My wife tells me that I'm not particularly fun to be around when I don't feel well. Now, I'm not so sure about that, but that's what she says. And, uh, and it's probably quite true, because the reality is when I don't feel well, I just don't like anything. And I don't want to be around anybody anyway. So that's what happens when we're not feeling well. It impacts our hearts. That's why we often pray for sick ones that they would find their comfort in Christ. And of course, that brings us to our next point, and that is this. We also recognize that His comfort 
is the divine remedy. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart. Literally, the rock of my heart, the solid rock of my hopes, the firm rock of my comforts, the eternal rock of my joys, all that my heart is, all that my heart does, God is the strength of my heart. It is God. Indeed, no other strength will do. All other rocks will crumble. Notice that as we proceed here, all other rocks will crumble. Only God is the rock of the heart that will never crumble. God is my strength. Now, that is not all that uncommon in times of physical need to declare that God is our strength. We who have been Christians for some time recognize that, we learn that, and we're happy to declare that. But the psalmist goes beyond that. He declares that God is my portion. God is my portion. The idea carries with it the idea of an inheritance, okay? the fulfillment of all my needs. The scriptures occasionally talk about our portion. And when it talks about our portion, it means this is what we need in order to do well. This is what we need in order to prosper. This is what we need in order to be successful. And God, the psalmist tells us, is our portion. It, it has to do with all to which all that I am entitled for my needs. It signifies that with which we are content because our needs are fulfilled. It has that idea of contentment with it. That if God is our portion, we are content with that because that's all we need. Amen. That's all we, we will need in order to be uh, a Uh, prosperous in the ways that God intends for us to be prosperous. Understand the context here. The psalmist was a Levite. Since he was a Levite, the Lord was his portion in the promised land in which he lived by the people's tithes that were dedicated to the Lord. He recognized that, and so, but here he confesses more than that. The Lord, he says, the Lord himself is his sustenance, his preserver, his very life. It wasn't the, 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 uh, the tithing off the top that was given to him that was his sustenance. It was the Lord who was his portion. And brothers and sisters, it is not our employment that is our portion. It is the Lord who is our portion. It is not the carne asada burrito. <laughs> which somehow or another we're going to have to have in heaven. But it, <laughs> even though I don't know how the death is going to... No, it, something that tastes like that at least. But that's not our portion. 
the delights that we enjoy of this life that God has given us, the, the sunshine as it, as it just warms us, the rain as it provides water for us, and the plants as they grow up with their beauty and, and fulfilling their function uh, with, with providing oxygen. That's not our portion. It's the Lord who is our portion. The Lord is our sustenance. The Lord is our preserver. The Lord is our very life. He and he alone is my portion. Spurgeon said this. He said, It is the comfort of a Christian in his saddest condition that God is his portion. In our saddest affliction, brothers and sisters, God is the rock of our lives. He is our portion. He and He alone. Here's the key idea, and it is a profound notion. Don't trivialize this notion. It is not a trite statement. God is the strength of my heart and my portion. You see, when my flesh fails me, and when my flesh is assaulted by affliction, God is the strength of my heart and my portion. And when my heart fails me, when my heart is assaulted, either by the circumstances of my life or even by my own sin, God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Someone says, yes, yes, I know. I know God is my strength and my portion and all that, but my life is so tough. Or, but I've been diagnosed with this horrible disease. Or, my financial situation is in ruins. Or, my life is in shambles. Or, my friends and my loved ones have all deserted me. Or how about this? I've been kidnapped by evil and militant terrorist Muslims, the Abu Sayyaf, who have imprisoned my wife and who chain me to a tree every night and are threatening to kill me if they don't receive their ransom demands, as Martin Burnham surely thought. Do you remember this? A few years ago in 2002, do you remember the Burnham family? in the Philippines, who were kidnapped by the terrorists and for over a year? What of his wife, Gracia, who saw her husband killed in a gun battle before herself being shot in the leg prior to her rescue? Surely she thought, I've been tormented in the jungle for over a year. My husband has been killed and taken from me. My ministry has come to a tragic end. What is it that sustains us in times like these? Where is our hope? Where is our rock? Where is our comfort? I've listened to Gracia's testimony. A marvelous, God-glorifying testimony. But more importantly, the psalmist, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, has told us, God is the strength of my heart. 
God is my portion forever, not myself. My own strength, it may fail. Not my possessions, they may go up in flames. Not in circumstances, I can't control them. Not in other people, they may disappoint me. But God, Gracia Burnham, testifies to this. Is God your strength and your portion? Do you know that? Does it comfort you in affliction? Well, how is this truth applied to us? Let me make some observations. Notice, first of all, the inverse order here. An inverse order here. We tend to think in terms of physical, material issues first in our 21st century American materialistic, naturalistic culture, don't we? And then our hearts follow. In other words, we're reactionary. The physical situation that is in our lives, we respond to that. But God cures the heart first. And he promises all the comforts we need after. Indeed, often our sovereign God permits physical or circumstantial issues to afflict us in order that he might draw our hearts back and closer to himself. It is very true that we here in the United States of America, with all our material goods and all our comforts, very often forget God altogether until affliction comes. Brothers and sisters, often it is God in His faithfulness bringing that affliction to us to remind us once again who it is that is our rock, who it is that is our portion. He fixes the heart first and then the comforts will follow. We are reminded of that profound passage, Psalm 119, where we read an amazing series of verses which say, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness, You have afflicted me. You see, when our hearts are right, our difficult circumstances, though difficult indeed, will not carry the debilitating sting. But also notice that we must foster the notion for the great desire to know and love this great God more. Not just intellectually, or theoretically, or even theologically, but in reality and personally. Look at verse 25 again. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. It reminds me 
of the time in the Gospels. Remember in, in the Gospel of John where Jesus had just gotten done preaching his sermon on eating his body and drinking his blood. And so many were offended. And, that, and the scriptures tell us from that time on, many left. And when Jesus turned to his, his little group of, of disciples and he said, will you leave also? Peter says, to whom will we go? You have the gift of eternal life. You see, this is the Christian's response to the afflictions. Where else would we go? That's what we're made for, to love and desire no one or nothing before God. That's what we're made for. We're created for that. For anything else will only lead to more failure, disappointment, heartaches. We are undone without him. We need to understand this and remember this in times of discouragement, affliction, and temptation. Listen to the words of Calvin. It is highly necessary for us to consider what we are without God. For no man will cast himself wholly upon God, but he who feels himself in a fainting condition and who despairs of the sufficiency of his own powers. We seek nothing from God but what we are conscious of lacking in ourselves. It is good to be reminded of our weakness, then we will rely on God. But notice also the duration of God's blessing. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We need to be reminded of an eternal perspective, don't we? We must not act as if we believe that this life is all there is. In reality, in reality, this life is just an instant in time, a blip on the screen of our existence. Some of us look back and we think, where has this life gone? It just goes by so quickly. It really does. But we have a forever to look forward to. We have forever to look forward to. Matthew Henry commented this. The saints choose God for their portion. They have him for their portion. And it is their happiness that he will be their portion. A portion that will last as long as the immortal soul lasts. He is my strength, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We are now beginning to taste just the first fruits of what it will be that he will be our portion forever. And someday when we are done with our own sin, the flesh no longer will fail. Our hearts no longer will fail. We will be done with the impact of the, of the curse and the fall in our lives coming at us 
from the outside and welling up from within inside and the whispering of the tempter in our ears to lead us down a faulty path. Someday we will be done with all that forever. And we will then begin to really understand what it means that the Lord is the strength of my heart. The Lord is my portion forever. We have this to look forward to. Brothers and sisters, let us keep that eternal perspective. We must keep our focus on God not on others, particularly the wicked, as the psalmist was beginning to do. That was the psalmist's error. We see it in verses 3 and following. Consider this thought by Jonathan Edwards. Though the wicked are in prosperity and are not in trouble as other men, yet the godly, though in affliction, are in a state infinitely better because they have God for their portion. They need desire nothing else. He that hath God hath all. Remember the words of Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail in the fields, yield no food. The flock be cut off from the field fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So let us then live in the light of this truth. And I believe this is a particular danger for us. For we've grown up in a materialistic and secular culture and afflicted by Western materialism. We struggle to walk by faith rather than by sight. Indeed, I believe this is a plague for us as 21st century American Christians. And the ramifications of that go far beyond our consideration today. But brothers and sisters, today I would simply exhort us to strive to live in the light of the truth that God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. That stream of thought from Psalm 119 that we considered earlier is summarized this way in verses 92 and 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. There it is. We live in the light of God's sustaining strength by keeping His precepts, by knowing and obeying His Word. Brothers and sisters, there's no need for fear, as Mark mentioned a while ago. There is no need for despair in the midst of trials and afflictions. Though our flesh and our hearts may fail, though our troubles fly upward like the sparks of a raging fire, we need not fear, we need not despair, we must not speak words that deny our God. 
We must not make plans that disregard or disobey our God. We must not engage in behaviors that dishonor our God. Let us live in the light of the truth that God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. Let us live in obedience to the life-giving law of God. Consider the words of Psalm 119.57, The Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. If God is all we need, then we must obey what he has called us to do. Do you see the connection there? Then let us live in all ways to glorify our God in order to enjoy him forever. Let me close with the words of a hymn by one of my favorite hymn writers, John Newton. This is a precious hymn to me. He penned these words. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seems intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my cords, and laid me low. Lord, why this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not only not left us on our own, but you have revealed to us your presence, your strength, your grace, your mercy. And indeed, Father, thank you for showing us your word, which are your precepts to drive us to lives that demonstrate that you are our portion, that you are our strength. And Father, today we pray that those who are in the midst of affliction and trials and tribulations at this time might find their hope in you and rest comfortably in you so that you can lead them and teach them the things that you have for them to know and so that they can rejoice in the goodness that you bestow upon us. 
Thank you, Father, and may we always be quick to declare your praises and your glory. May you receive all the glory for it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.